brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I was once happy, content, sloshing around in my own private primordial pool. Then one day, for reasons beyond my control, I was repeatedly crushed over and over by the cruel cervix of my mother, Leslie. I put up a good fight, but I lost for the first time, but not the last. And then, without warning, a middle-class childhood in an American suburb. I don't remember much between the ages of eight and 12. Just that the world moved fast and my brain moved slow. Okay. Until every second of every day you find yourself trying to outrun your anxiety. And quite frankly, I'm just fucking exhausted. I just showed up one day without a map or a compass. And I know it all may seem sad, but guess what? I didn't build this system. Nor did I fuck it up. And then it happens. That moment when your breath starts to slow. And every time you breathe, you breathe out all the oxygen you have. And everything stops. Your heart, your lungs, and finally your brain. And everything you feel and wish and want to forget, it all just sinks. And then suddenly... You give it air again, give it life again. And then over time, that's all I wanted. Those two seconds of nothingness. Seems these Gnostic speeches in popular culture just keep finding me. Very Gnostic indeed. The opening monologue from the HBO show Euphoria. From the unwanted birth to the cruel system, the protagonist, Rue, didn't create or fuck up. Ah, Zendaya, you are a bit of a one-tone actress. But I do relate with your performance as a bipolar, anxiety-riddled drug addict. I relate a lot. Parallels the old Houseman quote. I, a stranger and afraid, in a world I never made. No tree can ascend to the light of heaven if it doesn't descend to the depths of hell. The last part of the clip is when she's so messed up on drugs that she hits a moment of Satori. That holy emptiness and unholy gnosis. When you're in the perfect bardo and the demiurgic ego shuts off and thus with Tico's infection pauses. I can relate to that too. It happened once to me back in 1999. It was at a Squirrel Nut Zippers concert in Houston. My veins were pumping hard with a monstrous combination of ecstasy, cocaine, marijuana, uppers and McAllen scotch. I stumbled around the dance floor and suddenly the crowd seemed to part to reveal the band glowing. 
The club light was in balance like a midday. Unexpectedly, I was in a state of calm awake, and there was no me. It was as if all the drugs had countered each other, creating a perfect equilibrium of awareness. I was completely sober. My ego was alchemically purified. I was in the zone. There was nothing. I was nothing. I was the all. I was breath incarnate. And everything was alright for a few moments. Everything made sense. Like the Rue protagonist in the show, it didn't last long. And like her, drugs, alcohol, and mental illness brought me down into hells no human mind could imagine. You know my mother was an atheist. She used to say that there was good news and bad news about hell. The good news is, hell is just the product of a morbid human imagination. The bad news is, whatever humans can imagine, they can usually create. The struggle is real. The pain is real. What about those drugs? What about that feeling, eh? Well, many years later, I can regain that Satori, that holy emptiness and unholy gnosis. I don't need drugs, just self-knowledge and choosing ecstasy over entertainment. That's now, and an hour he could have total recall. If there are mind-altering substances, I have a Sangha, and I have psychopomps who guide me through the labyrinths of egoic consciousness to make contact with Hagia Sophia. Self-knowledge, going inward, finding your, yes, euphoria through kind action and a dedication to the hermetic noose. Even my bipolar curse is now my greatest gift as I can surf the tides of madness with that Jungian attitude of an anthropologist of the soul. We don't live in a material world. We live in a psychic world. We're only able to make indirect inferences about the nature of reality. Like take, for example, this pen, right? To me, this is a writing utensil, right? To my dog, it's a chew toy. Both are accurate. Right? It's just a question of context. Nothing is wrong with me. Nothing is wrong with you. Like me, you just need to listen. Because both the Archons and the Aeons are calling out for you to dare their secrets and integrate so that you can write your own gospel and live your own myth. As the Gospel of Thomas says, When you know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will understand that you are children of the Living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you live in poverty, and you are the poverty. Remember when pain didn't exist? When everything was pleasure? Whoever has known this world has found a corpse. But this world is not worthy of those who found that corpse. I personally believe all drugs should be legal and available, but I don't think they're beneficial unless you have found the right psychopomp. 
Our guest in this eternal now disagrees and drugs will be talking about. Jan Irving materializes at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, God's Flesh, Deonanakatl, The True History of the Sacred Mushroom. As always, Jan's research is compelling and precise and controversial. He and I have taken different roads since we connected more than a decade ago. Yet we can still be civil and we can still follow the data. Also, we can understand so many common enemies in the desert of the real. We can always talk because this is the virtual Alexandria, after all. And all are welcome in the arena of fiery ideas and volcanic free speech. If it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. Oh yeah, I'm not Zendaya, but I am Miguel Connor, and this is Aeon Bite. You're finally getting a normal intro, whatever that means for this podcast, as I'm getting back in the swing of things after my odyssey in Portugal. I've already revealed my insights to many of you in different channels, and more to come. From Santo Daime Ayahuasca visions to portals in the mountains and everything in between, I'll share with you in time. I'm Pickle Rick! Back to this episode. Jan and I discuss Earl Lee's book, The Cult of the Dead. Beyond the full episode for subs, I'll include this interview as Earl focuses more on the European mushroom cults. So it's a great compliment. Don't miss it and check out Jan's fascinating book. The Lord gave my son the strength to get off drugs. Ma'am, I know your son. And believe me, he was better off on the drugs. At least when he was smoking hashish, he used to make me laugh occasionally. Maybe you'll think twice after the episode about doing drugs or give your teachers a second look. I don't believe in gurus or masters, only temporal lesson givers in our journey, points of illumination and passing lights in our voyage that make up a tapestry of brightness leading to the pleroma. But hey, we are all gurus. Everything is a guru. The trees and the wind are your guru. A child's laughter is a guru. The song on your device too. Your breath is the greatest guru. Yaldi Baldi and his angels are certainly our gurus, and so is every memory you ever recall. For me, at one point, my gurus were all those drugs and a squirrel nut zippers concert. At least the memory of it. I didn't have the heart to tell her there is no heaven to go to. Because we're in it already. We're in hell too. They coexist, right beside each other. And God is the land. When the pupil is ready, the teacher arrives. And it's most often from within your wounded heart. As Steiner, Steiner, Steiner said, Wisdom is crystallized pain. You mock my pain! Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Stop looking outside for salvation, in the material world full of chimeras and pack mentality paradises. 
Humanity is on the brink, and in this age of Hermes, we must enter new doors before the roof of reality collapses once and for all. It's that simple. I like what Chris Hedges wrote not too long ago in his Substack. Civilizations die in familiar patterns. They exhaust natural resources. They spawn parasite elites who plunder and loot the institutions and systems that make a complex society possible. They engage in futile and self-defeating wars. And then the rot sets in. The great urban centers die first, falling into irreversible decay. Central authority unravels. Artistic expression and intellectual inquiry are replaced by a new dark age, a triumph of tawdry spectacle and the celebration of crowd-pleasing imbecility. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? The historian Arnold Toynbee, who singled out unchecked militarism as a fatal blow to past empires, argued that civilizations are not murdered, but commit suicide. For the most part, humanity has been a miserable little band of thugs stumbling from one catastrophe to the next. Our history is like the ravings of a lunatic. Chaos. Hedges provides examples of self-destructive Native American civilizations in pre-colonial times. Humans are humans, right? Hubris and allowing death cults to take over with their promises of eternal life and cheap highs always bring the same results. Jan will reveal even more. So let us to our interview. Let us find that Satori, that holy silence and unholy gnosis, sacred and profane as you were when you were crushed by your mother's cervix and brought out into this machine you thought was the real world. When you're crazy, you sometimes have to let your hands do the talking. The way you deal with this is you learn to enjoy being a passenger in your own body. They told me I have multiple personalities. They told me I don't fit in. But in a war between individuality and conformity, the individual is always outgunned. The conformists have the machines on their side. They think they've got all the angles covered. But they forgot two important things. Crazy people, we don't play by the rules. I'm supposed to act like they aren't here. Assuming there's a they at all. It may just be my imagination. Whatever it is that's watching, it's not human. Unlike little dark-eyed Donna, it doesn't ever blink. What does a scanner see? Into the head? Down into the heart? Does it see into me, into us, clearly or darkly? I hope it sees clearly because I can't any longer see into myself. I see only Mark. 
I hope for everyone's sake the scanners do better. Because if the scanner sees only darkly the way I do, then I'm cursed and cursed again. And will only wind up dead this way, knowing very little and getting that little fragment wrong too. This is the Aeon Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of having back Jan Irving to discuss his new book, God's Flesh, Deonanakult, and I probably misspelled or mispronounced it, The True History of the Sacred Mushroom. Jan, thank you very much for coming back. Thanks for having me back, Miguel. It's been like, what, eight or ten years since we did a show together? Oh, man, I just looked. It's longer. I think it was beginning of 2011, the last time we did a show. Yeah, so, well, you you and I are like two of the original podcasters back before podcasting was a thing, you know? Yeah, we were. We were just doing it. And I don't know if anybody was listening. Yeah, before the golden age of podcasting. So, yeah, I, I launched my show in October 2008. Yes, I do remember. Yeah, and but I have been following you all these years on uh, your podcast, your YouTube, and all that good stuff. So I was excited that you uh, put out this book. Uh, but before we get to it, uh, we would also like to welcome the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just fine. Um, this should be interesting. And uh, by coincidence, we ordered a mushroom pizza for dinner <laughs> after the interview. So... Well, as long as there's no human meat on it, it'll be fine. I (laughs) hope not. (laughs) I'm going to write to my congressman if there is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And uh, Jan, you're in California, so is Vance. Well, obviously, that's kind of a silly quote, right? Because California is so damn big. (laughs) It's not too far, probably about four hours away, maybe. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So, Jan, uh, tell us uh, tell us about the process or what made you decide to write God's Flesh. Oh, and it's uh, Teonanakatl is the is the word. And but anyway, I kind of started on this project. Well, I I wrote the initial part of it back in 2015, but even going back before that, in 2007, 2008, I wrote a book called The Holy Mushroom, and I was investigating in that book the attacks on John Allegro by R. Gordon Wasson. And for full disclosure, I am the publisher of John Allegro's book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, even though I don't agree with... uh, the vast majority majority of it anymore. But in the process of researching and writing the book, The Holy Mushroom, it became very evident that this guy, Gordon Wasson, was a nefarious character with all sorts of hidden agendas and inside information that he couldn't have gotten uh, unless he was intel of some sort or had people in intel working for him. And he would make spurious claims uh, that, you know, that just didn't check out. But for that book, my editor was John Allegro's daughter, uh, Judith Brown. And we had basically 
both come to the conclusion that Wasson had to be CIA or some other form of intel, but we couldn't prove it. So we decided to leave it out of that book because that book was based on just going through all of the lies that people like Gordon Wasson and Jonathan Ott and Carl Rock and others had made uh, about Allegro and his work. And they they just made up wild, false claims and basically slandered Allegro for years. John Allegro, he, you know, for a little background information, he was one of the original eight translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which since that time, I've, all, I've done work with Steve Jones showing that the Dead Sea Scrolls were likely entirely a hoax and and the whole hoax was created three days after the CIA's founding at a conference in Silesburg, Switzerland, where they based the scrolls on the Cairo Geniza to basically try to turn Christianity into a neo neoplatonist, communist, uh, Gnostic religion and take it away from the idea of logos. So, uh, Going forward, after writing the book, The Holy Mushroom, uh, in 2012, I published an article titled R. Gordon Wasson, The Man, the Legend, the Myth. And in there, I had private correspondences between Wasson and the head of the CIA, John, uh, uh, Alan Dulles, that I got through FOIA requests from the CIA and other evidence by then that showed that Wasson was indeed CIA. And then in November 2014, I published an article titled In Theogen's What's in a Name that showed how uh, Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond were one team, and then Gordon Wasson, Professor Carl Ruck, Jonathan Ott, and a couple other guys were part of Team Two to remarket psychedelics and mushrooms to the public taking them from the words uh, schizophrenogen or psychotomimetic, schizophrenogen to generate schizophrenia or psychotomimetic to mimic psychosis. And they changed the first team uh, with Aldous Huxley, changed the name to psychedelic, uh, a word that Humphrey Osmond created. And it's the only word in the English language that's based on psych rather than psycho. So they were trying to avoid any connotations of a negative experience. And then, you know, they kind of, you know, so there's ample documentation that Timothy Leary was a CIA agent from at least 1962 onward. And he was recruited to MKUltra by Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond. And uh, so basically he gets blamed for ruining the word psychedelic and he becomes the scapegoat of the whole operation to keep public focus away from MKUltra as a whole, to keep it focused on like a Manchurian candidate type figure. And, and they basically claim that Timothy Leary went rogue when it's entirely nonsense. When you go in and you look at, <laughs> yeah. All of the documentation and the books out there and everything, they were all working on the same agenda. 
And so then in 1979, Gordon Wasson and Carl Rock and Jonathan Ott and these guys invent the word entheogen. And they all cited each other in their works as reason for this new word. So in that article, Entheogens, What's in a Name, I went into all of the original documentation, the academic journals, every detail of their claims, and showed that their, their basis for creating the word entheogen was entirely fraudulent. And then, uh, you know, so all through this time, uh, I'm investigating Wasson and his crew. So this gets us up to November 2014. And then right around then in January 2015, I start writing the article uh, that became this new book. And then I ended up putting it aside. And in May, I published an article, Spies in Academic Clothing, that debunked the seven leading books on MKUltra that the psychedelic revolution got out of the CIA's control, that it was all blowback and all of this nonsense. And what I showed in that article was that that was uh, those, the seven leading books on MKUltra, Walter Bowart's Operation Mind Control, uh, Acid Dreams by, uh, uh, what's his name, Marty, uh, I forget his last name off the top of my head, Storming Heaven by Jay Stevens, Hank Alberelli's books, they're all essentially just controlling the official narrative so that people don't clue in that the psychedelic revolution itself was created in whole, lock, stock, and barrel by the CIA, and it wasn't blowback, it never got out of the CIA's control, um, and, you know, that they just literally created the whole thing. But, you know, so people would start arguing with me, well, psychedelics and mushrooms are older than the CIA. So therefore, it's the true origins of religion and spirituality and all of this stuff. Yeah, it's it's from the earth, dude. That's an it's argument the, you talk it's about. It's from in the your book. earth, dude. <laughs> like, like there's no poisons or anything that come from the earth, and and there's no poisonous mushrooms or anything, right? <laughs> yeah, you know these just ridiculous, ham-fisted arguments. And every, you know, I've heard this same argument maybe, you know. Uh, 10,000 times or more. And every hippie that says it to me thinks that their argument is original and I've never heard it before. And it's like, no, I just haven't heard it since 9 a.m. this morning. <laughs> so, you know, all of those ridiculous attacks made me want to go through and look at all of the original colonial era reports of the Aztecs or the Mexica and, uh, you know, other surrounding tribes and their use of mushrooms. And what did these original reports say that are literally the foundation of the entire field of ethnomycology? So if these reports are fake, well, let me rephrase that. If, the, if their use of the quotes from the colonial era are taken out of context, it debunks the entire foundation of ethnomycology and also debunks the claims of them being, you know, 
spiritual and the origins of religion. So I went in, I pulled literally every single ancient reports on these things that exist. And it wasn't at all, as you know, you've read the book, it, you know, it wasn't at all right. what was claimed. Yes, indeed. And yeah, you make a very good argument. And uh, for the audience, uh, Jan certainly knows this stuff. Uh, back when, before you pivoted, uh, we talked about your book, Astro Theology and Shamanism. Nobody has done more mushrooms than you have. As you said, you were on the other side. Then you followed the data, and it showed a very bleak picture of what the powers are doing to us. And but it was still amazing because I remember you were just following the data. You were putting out research and it always annoyed me because even if you disagree with somebody, the amount of ad hominem and ridicule that you got, I thought was way off the mark. I mean, were you surprised or were you just like, man, people are just, they're protecting their fiefdoms. They don't want this shit out. Well, it was both. So, you know, in, 2012, when I published the article, Gordon Wasson, The Man, The Legend, The Myth, I published all of these original sources from Yale, Harvard, Columbia, Princeton, the CIA directly, et cetera, you know, and, uh, you know, so to give a little perspective, in 2009, I received a letter from like 12 academics on a Purdue University letterhead stating that I was a significant scholar in the field of psychedelic research. And, you know, I'm thinking, hey, you know, you're supposed to do real research and I need to publish this stuff about Gordon Wasson, the, the, the guy who popularized magic mushrooms. We wouldn't, nobody would even know about them today if it wasn't for this guy, Gordon Wasson. Right. And uh, so when I published that article, um, the backlash was enormous. So I was working at the time with like 65 or more academics from around the country and some in, in other places of the world. Uh, and I was working on a, a thousand page interview project, uh, you know, and I had done that was originally how I started my podcast, in fact, interviewing 65 of the world's leading psychedelic experts and transcribing these interviews into a massive two-volume book set. And two-thirds of the way through the project, I realized something was amiss, and I halted that project. I never published it. It was years of work that I put into it. And, uh, you know, so but when I published that article, Gordon Wasson, The Man, The Legend, The Myth, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, they're going to praise me for, for all of this research and for all of these original sources that I dug up. And instead, the opposite happened. I lost 65 friends in a week, week and a half. And none of them addressed any of the research that I put out, any of the citations, not one of them. And instead, they resorted to ad hominem attack and ridicule and trying to get me back into line and trying to get me to recant everything I had just published. So that turned my focus from just Gordon Wasson to everybody in the field. Because, you know, when you're an author, 
you expect other authors to read your work. And if they're going to critique it, they're going to say, you got a, an error on page 30, paragraph right. two, yeah. you know, and here's the corrected information. I got none of that. Even today, it's been over a decade. Not one person from the entire field has given an honest uh, critique of that work and tried to debunk the actual citations. It, it's only been attacked. And so, you know, just in awe of this wild series of attacks from academics and researchers and authors, uh, you know, my focus turned from Wasson to the whole field. And it became a question of these, these academics and authors and researchers, they're either complicit or they're incompetent on a scale that's unfathomable to, to contemplate. And either way, if they're complicit, you don't want to be associated with them. And if they're that incompetent, if they're that right. stupid, <laughs> you don't want to be associated with them, right? So that's what it came down to. There was only two camps, complicit or stupid. And, uh, you know, so... But That's, what about people who just didn't want to face reality? They had their followers, they had their business, right. well, they were making money. You just don't want to well, face sure, the and truth. And that's the stupid category, you know, but, <laughs> you know, but if, if they're making money on it, that means they're also complicit, right? You know, they're, they're, they're focused right. on their agenda rather than on the truth. And to me, the truth is what matters most. So, you know, I was floored. You know, and and seeing one professor, you know, PhD friend after the other saying, oh, poo poo, you know, I'd get comments like, well, you didn't run it by us for peer review. Well, you mean the same academics that overlooked this stuff for the last 65 years? I'm going to bring it to you guys for peer review. You're the ones who screwed up in the first place. Jan, what's the true basis of the controversy? Um, I'm, I've been listening, and Miguel read the book, but I haven't. So, uh, what, what's the, what's the bottom line basis of their objections? Of their objections to my work? Yes. Well, their objections are unfounded. It's just their objections yeah. are solely name calling and ridicule. Well, no, I, I don't mean what they did to object. I mean. What, why didn't they like, what was it that you had to say that they didn't like? Well, I discovered that R. Gordon Wasson, head of the CIA's MKUltra subproject 58, that became the psychedelic revolution and was, it was launched on May 13, 1957 in, in Life magazine and May 19, 1957 in This Week magazine to uh, 12 million newspaper subscribers. And then a decade later, that kicked off the summer of love that became the entirety of the psychedelic revolution. And I've got letters and, and things that, that Leary was reporting everything he did back to Wasson and these guys. So the whole thing was MK Ultra. But what's more than that is when I went into the original reports, into the original records from the 15 and 1600s, all but one of them were about 
cannibalism and human sacrifice and murder. And so what they did was they would truncate and omit anything that didn't go along with this new age hippie religion that they were manufacturing. And they were making wild, specious claims that this is the true origin of the Aztecs. And when you go in and you look at even the Aztecs' own reports, their religion was human sacrifice and cannibalism. They had an 18-month, 20-day calendar with five-day weeks. Every 20 days, they made human sacrifices. They would cut out their hearts, roll the people down the temple, and then cannibalize their victims, which were usually their slaves, and often while under the influence of mushrooms. That was the real religion. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. I see. So the the basic issue here is that the MK Ultra people uh, managed to start this, you know, uh, magic mushroom um, movement that told people that it was a path to the higher realms and the uh, and a path to even even uh, contact with God or angels or whatever. Yeah, and Correct. instead and it that's... makes it suggestive. It creates a more it suggests it makes a more suggestive society easier right. to control. And that's you know, and in my article in Theogen's What's in a Name, the word entheogen means to generate God within, and that's what I exposed in my article in Theogen's What's in a Name, how the entire premise of their creation of that word was based entirely on a fraud. And so uh, you know, they created this whole new new age, spiritual, hippie, mushroom religion based on this supposed proto-hippie Aztec Native American archetype that never existed. And in fact, I found plenty of reports that show that over over 50% of all Native American tribes from Guatemala to Alaska were cannibal tribes. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. In fact, in in 1503, Queen Isabella of Spain issued a royal decree which stated under no uncertain terms that only cannibals were allowed to be enslaved. They were given an option. You become a Christian and give up your bloodthirsty ways and your cannibalism and human sacrifice or you can be sold as a slave. And part two of that is that these cannibals who did all these human sacrifices, 
were slave owners themselves. So it was a tongue-in-cheek irony. You want to enslave people and eat them? We're going to sell you as slaves. So this is how Christianity ended this global human sacrifice and cannibalism cult that people refer to as, quote-unquote, spiritual paganism. You know, and that's going to upset a lot of people in the audience, no doubt, but the evidence is there. You know, if you go out you go out and dig up and spend some time reading the original, you know, French reports, Spanish reports, even the Aztecs' own reports admit all of this stuff. Um, and, you know, just put your ego and preconceived ideas aside. It's all there, you know, and, and in, in uh, 1979, this professor William Ahrens wrote this book, The Man-Eating Myth, claiming that the Christians and the Spanish, etc., made the whole thing up. Well, since then, archaeology and, and modern technology has shown beyond doubt that this stuff was going on. So, you know, people came up with the idea that it was all ethnocentric othering and missionary slander and all of this nonsense to dismiss these reports. You know, one of the, the first interviews I did, I think it was episode number eight on my show, uh, was with Professor Neil Whitehead, who was a victim of a Kanema or dark shaman attack. And in his books on dark shamanism, he shows how they were cannibals. And this is, you know, in the early to mid 2000s, he was reporting all of this. And, you know, these groups would bury a body and let it marinate in the ground. And then they would drink what was called the maba or the necro honey essentially from these corpses that they had killed and, and buried and they would bury them with herbs and all of this stuff and then exhume them and drink this this necrotic maba that they uh you know brewed inside these cadavers i think i better cancel that pizza order <laughs> <laughs> You're not having dinner tonight, man. No, we we just haven't lost even, my appetite. Yeah, we haven't even uh, touched the surface. And it is true. You yourself, Jan, you quote in your book, God's Flesh, an article from Science <clears throat> from June 2018, which says that the uh the, the Aztec human sacrifice was not an exaggeration by the Spaniards. So you can give evidence of In that. In fact, they they talk about how it was the largest industry of human sacrifice ever on planet Earth, and that they uncovered temple complexes that revealed upwards of a hundred and thirty thousand human skulls. See, you know, when the Spanish showed up and they come into what is now Mexico City, these they saw these these huge skull temples. And, and what the Aztecs would do is they would go to war against surrounding tribes and take captives and sacrifice them and eat them. And, uh, you know, so when, when Cortez shows up, a lot of the tribes were so fed up, you know, and again, probably 50% of them were cannibals and, and 50% weren't, but a lot of them were so fed up with, with uh, Montezuma and the Aztec 
they were like, uh, wait, so let me get this straight, Cortez and, and the Spanish. All you want us to do is worship this guy, Jesus, as the last human sacrifice and follow Logos, or truth is God, and we don't have to eat each other or worry about being eaten anymore. And, uh, you know, so they, you know, they were able to quickly convert tens of thousands of people to Christianity. And, you know, any, and under is Queen Isabella's decree, any tribe or society who was not a cannibal was to remain entirely free. So it was, you know, it was the ones that were, were, cannibals that were forced to become Christians or sold into slavery. And uh, so a lot of them just were like, yeah, you know, this is a lot better deal than this sacrificing people every 20 days on the sunstone and cutting out their hearts and then eating them. So, you know, it was a far better deal, you know, and when you get into the, the Inquisition records, you know what what the left likes to do is is spin that the you know the Inquisition was this horrible thing where they mass murdered millions of people all over the world and blah blah blah. But if you actually get into the Inquisition records and read them for yourself, you discover that the Inquisition were they were courts. You didn't have town and city and county and state and federal courts. You had the Inquisition, and the Inquisition that was composed of judges and lawyers and witnesses and everything you would expect in a court today. Back then, they didn't have recordings and video and stuff like that and photographs, so it was based on eyewitness accounts, and they would try to gather as many eyewitness testimonies as they could. And when you read through these reports, a lot of the guys who were put to death were were sentenced for pedophilia, for rape, for incest, and for murder. You know, and it would be like saying, you know, somebody 500 years from now digs up the U.S. court records in cases like Ted Bundy and says, well, they sentenced this guy to death. So, you know, <laughs> everybody that went through the U.S. court system was sentenced to death, which, of course, we know is absurd. And uh, so, you know, and, and they just omit every single other detail, but they were actual court records. And in fact, when uh, the first uh, bishop of Mexico, Zumaringa, he tried this guy, Don Carlos, I believe was his name. He tried this guy and sentenced him to death. He was, he was uh, charged with incest with his 16-year-old niece, whom he had two daughters with, attempted rape, the sacrifice of a young boy, and a bunch of, bunch of other stuff. So he gets sentenced to death by burning. And when the report of, of this guy gets back to the Inquisitor General in Madrid, Spain, he sends back orders to the, Inquis the, the Mexican Inquisition that it was to halt immediately and that all 
further cases of Native Mexicans, Native Americans, if you want to call them that, were to be tried ordinarily. And that, you know, no more bizarre uh, treatments, you know, or bizarre sentences. And basically what happened is this first bishop of Mexico, Zumaringa, he uh, wanted to make an example out of Don Carlos for this sacrifice of a young boy in this region. Don Carlos was caught hiding numerous uh, Aztec idols that they had, you know, his historically made human sacrifices to. And they found the remains of this young boy that was sacrificed. They couldn't prove that it was Don Carlos that did it. But Zumaringa sentenced him to death anyway to set an example to the other, you know, Native Mexicans not to be committing human sacrifice anymore. So because there was no direct proof, that outraged the Inquisitor General in Madrid, Spain, and he halted the whole damn thing. You know, but, you know, it's like you get into the the Spanish Inquisition, you know, there were 130,000 cases. And 2.7% resulted in a death sentence or about 6,000 people. And that included people for rape, for murder, for incest, you know, for pedophilia, etc. And, you know, one of the, the things people love to spout about the Inquisition, they'll bring up like Goa, India. Okay, well, let's look at Goa, India. The Inquisition lasted for 251 years. Exactly 57 people in 251 years were sentenced to death, or 0.227 people per year. Another 67 people died while they were in prison. So this is this massive genocide that the Spanish or Portuguese or whomever committed in, uh, in Goa, India, 57 people. So, you know, it, you know, people have to realize that, you know, you have to go in and look at the actual records. You know, it's like, well, here the, the Inquisitions murdered, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of witches. And if you go into the records, you find out that most of these witch hunts were along the western German border and the church actually stepped in and stopped it. Yeah, it was far worse with the Protestants. Yeah, the burning times was not that prevalent with the, the Roman Catholic Church. Right, you know, and but it was mostly along the western German border and the Roman Catholic Church stepped in and stopped it. But that doesn't co coincide with the official leftist, satanic, anti-Christian agenda that we hear, you know, spouted everywhere. You know, I spent a lot of time investigating the the Salem witch trials, and they've turned Salem, Massachusetts into a, a Disneyland for promoting witchcraft and Satanism. Most of the churches in the area in Salem and Danvers have been shut down, you know, but I went through the whole area, you know, and, and I was able to solve what it was. And you get all of these ridiculous theories that it was ergot. When people in the 1600s were fully aware of what ergot poisoning was, and for those in, in your audience who don't know, ergot is where LSD is derived. It wasn't ergot. It wasn't syphilis. It wasn't all of these ridiculous claims. What I found was that uh, 
Cotton Mather and Benjamin Franklin and these guys and Harvard University were doing human inoculation experiments and the girls were poisoned with mercury. I created a chart and I put in all of the different historical claims. I've got like six feet of books on Salem dating back from the early mid 1800s to present. And I've got the original court transcripts and everything. And instead of saying that, you know, all of the symptoms were just made up like every other hack academic author out there and researcher, I actually said, okay, here's the claims that the girls made at Salem. And here, here are the symptoms that were reported. And then I looked up every single historical claim and I charted it out. You know, this one clicks two boxes, this one clicks seven, this one clicks three, et cetera. And then I get to cinnabar and mercury and it's like, check, 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 all the way down the list. So, you know, what, what people don't realize is that, you know, in, in, in 1999, they found 15 bodies in Benjamin Franklin's basement. Why the hell would Ben Franklin, one of the forefathers of our country, have 15 bodies in his basement? And if you go on the Smithsonian website and you look it up, they have all of this ridiculous spin to excuse it. And, oh, well, you know, they just didn't know where to put bodies or blah, 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 some nonsense. But, um, you know, it's just all of this ridiculous spin. And when you when you look at how Ben Franklin was the protege of Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather headed the Salem witch trials. His father or grandfather founded Harvard University. And we're talking back in like the, what was it, like the 1640s or something like that. But, you know, there's a pretty severe veil or wall that you have to get through when you go beyond researching anything past like 1720 and you have to be really willing to dig in and do hard research and i think part of that is because there was a a massive global uh empire called tartary or tartaria that they've tried to erase just about everywhere since the 1880s or 90s and uh you know so they've they've kind of whitewashed any history uh prior to the 1720s and but you know salem was used just like you know the inquisitions of mexico or spain or or anything else to spin this wild tale of superstitious ignorant christians just didn't know better and when you go in and read the personal letters of people from the 1690s and before, they're so articulate and well-educated that most bachelor's degree students can't understand what's being said there today. Yeah, I remember we talking to, remember our mutual friend, Acharya S., and you know she was no friend to Christianity, but she always said, that Christianity did well because it removed human and a lot of animal sacrifice from the world. Obviously, 
it wasn't just Mesoamerica, Jan. I mean, a, a mutual oh, yeah. guest of ours, Earl Lee in his book, The Cult of the Dead. This kind of well, stuff Earl, was going Earl, on all over Europe. Well, Earl Lee likes to spin a tale. You know, he and Acharya both like to spin this anti-Christian, theosophist uh, point of view. And... You know, when you, you know, when you get that Acharya was a theosophist and follower of Madame Blavatsky and all of that, it, it all starts really clicking into place. I've got all of Earl Lee's books. I've, I had him on the show maybe a decade ago or so. Yeah, I listened to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and at the time I believed a lot of what he had to say, but you know, when you, when you get in and you look at the stuff, see, here's the thing is when you grasp the idea of Christian logos. so. The word logos, it comes from John 1, 1, which is trans, translated in English as the word. But right. the real word is logos. And logos is where we, it means reason, means it, it's where we derive the word logic. It also means reality. And logic is the art of non-contradictory identification or truth. And in Christianity, God is truth. You go into court today, you swear to it. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And then in Christianity, Satan is the father of all lies. So, you know, people will try to claim, well, Christians worship this man floating in, in space. No, they don't. They literally worship truth as God. And Jesus is truth incarnate, giving us the ultimate example to live in truth by. And so when you get these concepts that it's about truth versus lies, living righteously, living to the right righteously, or living by the left using lies, deception, you know, Satanism and all of that stuff, it all starts to click and, and make sense. But Christianity was one of the first philosophies other than like Aristotle to say that Reality is real. There are no contradictions in nature. A contradiction is always a lie or an error. And then from there, we can use logic and reason to discover the truth, to know the truth. And getting to know the truth brings us closer to God, whereas lies and deception and all of that take us further away. And you're fine that the Logos was, was using before Christianity with the Stoics and other groups. Well, well, to some extent, yeah, but Christianity really solidified it, right? And, you know, the Jews were working on the idea of, of Logos in the Old Testament. And like Maccabees 4 and some of the removed books are all about uh, this idea of of logos, but they hadn't quite developed it to the to the extent. And then you had the Christian scholastics that spent centuries really making it a core part of human thought. And then uh, you know, and of course Aristotle was part of that. But you had the Neoplatonists that became the Gnostic school and the Cathars and all of this stuff. And it was about the denial of reality, that it's all primacy of consciousness. The world is a reflection of ourselves or monopsychism. 
that nothing is real. And this is the angle that the CIA and MKUltra and Aldous Huxley and Timothy Leary and all of these guys took. And that, you know, it's all about bringing, you know, bringing us back to the monad uh, so that the world collapses back into one. And by their philosophy, therefore, social Darwinism and eugenics and mass genocide and all of this stuff was okay because we were bringing back humanity into this monopsychism. And there's only one philosophy in that mind. Whereas under Logos, uh, reality is real. There are no contradictions in nature. You, Miguel, you, Vance, have the right to exist. You have your own free will and agency to choose right from wrong. You're not a figment of my imagination. You actually exist. And then everybody has agency to act in this reality. So it takes, you know, it takes reality to the fullest extent of understanding so that we can navigate truth versus lies and get through life, you know, protecting our families and loved ones from from deception and whatnot and and people who would wish us ill will. Yeah, you mentioned Aldous Huxley. Remember when it used to be like the drinking game in your podcast a long time ago? Oh, I, I still do that every <laughs> you once still do in a while. That. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a fun one with uh with Mr. Huxley and so forth. And it's interesting too, uh going to your book. Uh, you do talk about, we're talking about how Gordon Wasson, as you say, he omits, he truncates all that or does his own ad hominem. You talk about, uh, here's a great example. You have uh, Friar Diego Duran, who talk, he's talking about the Aztec or more, more or less, I guess we should call them the Mexicas and the rituals. And then Wasson says it's just a white man's fantasy. But he just doesn't mention that uh, Friar Diego Duran was a mestizo. So right. He's just... <laughs> and, 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 and not only that, he published his book in like 1581, and which means he was likely a first generation mestizo, maybe a second generation, but very likely a first generation, which means he was 50% indigenous. Yeah, it's uh, some some of the incredible uh, examples that you use in your book, and the other one too we should discuss is the uh, the Mazatec mushroom movement, and you prove that this is also a complete fraud. Oh yeah, well, you know, so basically the Mazatec had been relocated for a massive Mexican uh, uh, hydroelectric dam project, and uh, so these people re were relocated, but when you go in and you look at the original reports, they only use the mushrooms for treating uh, their sick. And the, the person who was sick generally didn't consume them, only the curandero did, or the healer. And the healer would decide high on drugs if you were to live or to die. And if, if they came down from the mushroom trip and said you were going to die, you gave up life and quit drinking and drinking water and eating food. And within a couple of few weeks, you were dead. 
And, uh, you know, so this was the whole thing. In fact, Maria Sabina came out in 1981, I think, in a book with Alvaro Estrada, admitting that before Wasson, no one used the mushrooms for spirituality or to find God, that it was only to treat the sickness that their people suffered from, which included tuberculosis and malnutrition and other stuff. And then uh, I went back through all of the original Aztec reports and Spanish reports, etc. And out of all of them, only one referenced any sort of ritual. And it was in reference to dark shamanism and casting spells on, on enemies. All of the others, every single other mushroom report, was about using the mushrooms during partying and dancing and music, and that's it, or cannibalism. And for the audience, who is Maria Sabina? Wasn't she, what, Gordon's mouthpiece? Right. Well, no, she wasn't Gordon's mouthpiece. So Maria Sabina, she she became the poster woman of the modern-day magic mushroom movement. So what Wasson did is he went out and, he interviewed all of these different uh, people from different indigenous tribes around Mexico, and all of them were Ill- illiterate. Most of them were drunk. And uh, he would write down these reports, and then he cobbled this hodgepodge of information all together. And then Maria Sabina being the most representable of these indigenous people, he used her to become the poster woman for this brand new magic mushroom religion that never existed before May 13, 1957. So he just used her to as marketing, to as the prototypical uh example of the historical use of these mushrooms through throughout all mexican history when in reality he manufactured the whole thing and took all of these various reports and applied it onto her and that's why she came out in 1981 and said it was all bullcrap that wasson made it all up or you know that that no one had used the mushrooms to find god before wasson she was a devout catholic and of course, Wasson omitted that. And all of the reports, except for one uh, Mexican anthropologist, Fernando Benitez, all of them omit the facts of the, the dam project and the lowland Mexico, uh, Mexi- uh, not Mexico, the lowland, uh, oh, geez, uh, Maria Sabina's tribe. Uh, having been relocated. So he tries to make it out like it's this, you know, perfect, untouched tribe out in the middle of nowhere. See, and and the thing is, is due to the dam project, they needed economics, the Mexican government needed economic stimulus in the area. What's, what's a source of economic stimuli? How about tourism? Yeah, of course. So they created this new mushroom religion, painted Sabina, Sabina not as a Catholic, but as the image of the proto, the perfect proto, you know, shamaness 
that re- represents, you know, the original Aztec religion. She, you know, and the, the Mazatec don't even speak Nahuatl, the original, you know, the language of the Aztec or Mexica. And, uh, you know, and in fact, in, in book 10, the people, they're probably identifying the Mazatec as one of the uh, barbaric tribes. You know, they don't state, they do name some of the tribes specifically, but, you know, they mention that there are all of these, uh, you know, barbaric tribes that are uneducated and whatnot. And it's m- more likely that the Mazatec and Sabina were one of these barbaric tribes and not any sort of representation of the original Aztec Mexica religion or, you know, anything because you know and the original religion was human sacrifice and cannibalism based on the aztec calendar awesome well for the audience jan where can people get your book i'm sure it's not in joe rogan's gift shop but where can people (laughs) find your book (laughs) and more about you uh they can find out more about me and they can get my book from the store page on my website logosmedia.com L-O-G-O-S media.com. They can also find it on Amazon. Uh, Hopefully it's not too hard to find on Amazon. If, you know, I've, I published it with one publisher for the first uh, couple of months and I didn't like, and I pulled it from there and, and, and redid it. So it's kind of have been having trouble to uh, link the, the new one where the old one was showing up on Amazon. I haven't checked it in the last week or so to see if that problem has been rectified, but um, you know, you can write me and I'll show you where to find it. If you don't want to get it directly from me, if they get it from me, the first 100 are numbered and autographed. Uh, I think we're on like number 53 or something like that. So uh, I still have some of those available if if people want a numbered and signed copy. Awesome. And your website is logosmedia.com, right? Correct. All right. Well, there you have it. I, I enjoyed the book. A uh, lot of good, strong data and insights into the past. And, and yeah, a great read. But uh, we are at the end. Vance, uh, thanks for being here. And I hope uh, are you still having that mushroom pizza or is it going to be worse? Pineapple on pizza? No, I got to go pick the mushrooms off it now. (laughs) Well, Jan, uh, it's great, uh, great having my eyes opened here. A lot of things I didn't know. And uh, I was looking up on the Internet uh, while I was listening to this. And there's uh, I I found a lot of the same stuff in a lot of different places. So um, interesting. Yeah. But people won't find a lot of your research anywhere else. Yeah, well, you know, and then I get these idiots who who don't know how to check footnote citations and they'll say, well, I put in that quote you used into Google and it brought me back right to your website. So you made it up. It's like, no, you see that little number at the end of the quote that takes you to the footnote where I got the citation from. You know, you don't put the quote into Google because I'm the only person that quoted that site, that source. You put the source into Google, and if you got to go buy a book or, you know, an old copy of a magazine or newspaper or something, well, that's what you got to do. It's not on me to, you know, go buy you every copy of every book because you're lazy and want free handouts. You know, 
Yeah, simple. Yeah, a little bit of thinking. Well, awesome. Well, Jan, as always, it's uh, been great talking to you. Hopefully, we won't wait another 10 years for our next conversation because <laughs> I always enjoy what you have to say. We may not agree, but I love uh, discussing all this data and ideas uh, because it just uh, makes us think and makes us uh, go on a journey for the truth. But as always, thank you very much for coming on the show and good luck with everything. Thank you, Miguel, for having me on. It's uh, good talking to you again after 11 years. <laughs> Always is. <laughs> One of, uh, you, you know, again, we're, you know, we're the original Pioneer podcast, which we a are. lot of people don't realize that, you know. Yeah, yeah, way back then. It almost kind of kind of missed those times. It certainly was a little less insane. But, oh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, fewer trolls and LARPers and yeah. all of that stuff and people actually willing to learn. And it wasn't drowned out by then with uh you know counterintelligence disinformation right and there was less censorship people either liked your stuff or they didn't and they'd go away it's very simple all right yeah no now anything you say oh well you know someone's feelings are hurt you know so yeah yeah we're the thought police here to uh you know protect the weak-minded yeah cultural revolution as always so as always. oh well we shall persevere well, Yang, thanks again, and I uh, hope to talk to you soon. All right, Miguel, Vance, have a great night. You too. Hey, you too, Yang. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. Yan bringing those red pills as always. Or maybe brown acid for some of you. In our second part, Jan will share more on cannibalism, including the disease Kuru and adrenochrome. He'll talk about his frayed relationship with Joe Rogan, as well as his general stance on drugs and rock music. This includes the truth about the Beatles. Jan will also discuss Terence McKenna, the Trivium, and what are his views on the future. Are they negative or positive? Find out. As mentioned in the intro and as a bonus, I'll include my interview with Earl Lee on his book, the Cult of the Dead. Earl focuses more on the European mushroom cults, so it's a great compliment. Don't miss it. So please become a member for the full dope. It's only $6.99 for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. For AB Prime members and higher level patrons, you'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord. If you find value in this content, please support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the U.S. mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip via Stripe now. Keep in mind, I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. Consider joining the Finding Hermes program, where we have bi-monthly meetings on Gnostic practices and rituals, as well as some cool Q&As. I'm also on Rockfin or Odyssey if crypto is your bag. If you need help with all these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. 
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.